Are you an engineer who wants to stay in a technical environment and move into managerial roles? Or perhaps you have an entrepreneurial bug bite? Cornell's Engineering Management Masters may be the answer to your prayers. And it comes in two distinct flavors, on campus and online. We're going to learn about both from the director and executive director of this program. So tune in. Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Accepted's founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams. Welcome to the 516th episode of Admission Straight Talk. Thanks for joining me. Before we dive into today's interview, I want to mention a free resource at Accepted that can benefit you if you are applying to graduate engineering programs. Applying to graduate engineering programs, what you need to know is a free downloadable guide that can guide you through a process you've never been through before. It's not the same as applying to college. So download your complimentary copy at accepted.com slash 516 download. Our guests today are Dr. Patrick Reed. Dr. Reed is the director of Cornell's Master's in Engineering Management Program, or the MEM. He is joined today by Professor Robert Newman, Executive Director and Senior Lecturer in Engineering Management at Cornell University. Hello, Dr. Reed and Professor Newman. Welcome to Admission Straight Talk. Good afternoon. I'm delighted to speak with you both. So let's let's start with just how I normally like to start a podcast. Dr. Reed, what is the Engineering Management Program at Cornell University? Can you provide an overview of, first of all, the on-campus program? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing is just to clarify what type of degree it is. So it's a, our Master's of Engineering. So it's a professional degree. And within this, uh, it's in the College of Engineering. And Engineering Management itself is a program where we are bringing folks that typically have engineering or STEM training, and then they want to continue in a technology-driven environment while simultaneously training them into the skill sets uh, that links them into business and putting them into a trajectory where their, their future career is more focused in transitioning the technologies to market and thinking about management roles. And so it's that interface where it's a nice balance um, where you get individuals that can be involved all the way down to the, you know, technical specifications and design stage of, you know, uh, technology and translating it into, you know, its ultimate societal use and marketing and, you know, the more management driven and I would say entrepreneurial driven opportunities. All right. Now. In terms of the on-campus program, can you just go over the, what it is, what people will be studying? Sure. So what folks will be doing when they come to the program, it's a typical version of the on-campus is a two-semester program. And so when they come, they will be taking a mixture of our core courses and then uh, some of our electives. And so the types of courses that they'll be taking, they'll be taking courses in project management and data analytics, economics and finance, uh, decision-making, leadership seminars. Uh, we'll also want them to get you know, a, a broader training. So they'll be taking electives in organizational and behavioral. It's one of those things where 
it's not just enough to have the technology or the idea or the design. You have to put that within the institution and market context that you want. And then one of the defining traits of our program is then it's open to nine specialization credits. And a lot of that is taken across colleges, can be within you know, engineering, it could be within the business school or even more broadly. And so, and with that, you know, our popular tracks, consulting, analytics, leadership, we have real estate and construction management, you know, sustainability and renewable energy, entrepreneurship. Robert can correct me, but I think one of our most popular tracks is the build your own track. Our student comes in and they see the sort of the flavors of all the different coursework that's available. And they sort of, you know, they tailor to their own interests. So it's pretty flexible in that regard. But yeah, that gives you a, a synopsis. And that's typically done in one academic year. We do have the option for students who, you know, want to maybe do an internship and they have a little more flexibility. There can be a three semester option for the on-campus folks. Okay, great. Now, Professor Newman, can you answer the same question about the online program? Uh, provide an overview. How is the online program structured? Sure, thank you very much. So the online program really allows professionals who are currently in the workplace to come and get the same degree, uh, but while remaining in their job and, and continuing to work full time. It's a part time program and students will take either one or two courses each semester. This allows them to finish the program in as short as four semesters, or they can take a longer period of time if that suits their workload better, except for two one-week-long summer intensives that we hold uh, each June, the classes are done completely remotely. The, they're scheduled in accordance with our normal academic calendar, so the start date of the classes is the same as the start date uh, with the on-campus students, and the end dates are the same as the end dates with the on-campus students. Very much the same classes for the most part, although there are some specialty classes that we have for the online students as well. And then there's a variety of levels of asynchronicity versus coordination of schedules, depending on the type of class. So some classes, the students who are online can do most of the work on their own schedule. Other classes, especially classes that require coordination with, with students for activities, such as a class in negotiations, for instance, uh, they would yeah. have to schedule coordinates with their classmates. Okay, great. Are there electives? I mean, like, or what percentage of courses are elective in each of the programs? Dr. Reed, do you want to start with that one? Yeah, so for ours, we have a 32 credit on campus degree, and nine of those credits are specialization or, you know, optional. And so there's a degree of flexibility there. And then even within, for example, organizational and behavioral, we have multiple options that are available to the students. So if they want to take different flavors of that, uh, for example, emphasizing, you know, contemporary issues that they currently face, or if they want a more entrepreneurship focus, we have different options there. So in that regard, you know, definitely nine credits available. And then beyond that, there's some freedom in uh, some of the requirements. Very great. Yeah, and I would add to that, that, that one of the the things that many of our students state is that's one of the things that attracts them to Cornell is their ability to to pick you know almost a third of their program they get to design based on their area of interest and the things they want to learn. All right, great. That's good to know. 
Now, is the degree that participants earn in both programs the same? Is it do they both get a master's in engineering management, or is there an asterisk after the diploma for the online program? Yeah, so they're both exactly the same from the student view. It's the same master's in engineering degree in engineering management. The course listings on the transcripts will look the same, and the diploma is the same. Okay. And do you, are you seeing any difference in terms of, well, I guess one group is more for experienced people and, and the online program is more of an early career program. Is that correct or, or not so correct? That, that, is, that is correct. So, so the on-campus program usually is uh, people in their fifth year of academia or people who have maybe two or three years of work experience and then they're coming back to academia to get their master's degree. Whereas the online course is for students that must have at least two years experience. But right now, we're averaging about eight years experience in wow, our really? distance that's learning more cohort. Than the, that's even the more than, than typically an MBA program. Yes, it is. That's been attractive for the interactions between our program and the you know, Cornell MBA program is they find that a lot of our students, even the on-campus students, uh, are coming with, you know, some nice industrial experience uh, and perspectives. So it, it's been positive and we've been uh, fortunate for how the distance learning program, I mean, we're new, right? We launched in 2020. Great time and, to launch a new program. <laughs> uh, learning by doing, right? And, you know, talking about entrepreneurial, uh, you know, five years before that were a lot of plans and a lot of studio time, but, you know, it's been great. And, you know, right now we have, across the couple of cohorts, and I think Robert can correct me, but, you know, we have 55 professionals, you know, at different stages of working their way through while simultaneously giving them a sense of cohort and connectedness, you know, and that's neat, right? Because you have people in different companies in different parts of the country that are, you know, connecting in ways through these courses and interactions that wouldn't be available otherwise. And so, you know, in many ways, I'd say from the faculty perspective, there's been a lot of fun and benefits from, you know, bringing in people with so much of a, you know, diversity of backgrounds and experience. Do the programs ever meet? Participants, there's I mean. So off in terms of the flexibility for the DEL and the professional constraints that generally the cohorts aren't together at this stage because of the logistics would be, you know, very difficult. And our on-campus cohorts are quite a bit larger. And so the logistics of that coordination is a bit more challenging. How many people are in each of the programs? So I'm correct, Robert. I think we have 55 that are in process in their distance learning. And That's then uh, we have something on the order of over 100 in our on-campus degree program, ranging from folks that may be staying an extra semester and some of those that are in the more traditional nine-month, two-semester track. What are the most significant differences between the master's in engineering management and the MBA or even an executive MBA? Because it sounds if the average age group has eight years of experience, you're almost approaching the executive MBA area marketplace. I mean, I'll I'll take a stab at this and then I'll pass okay. to Robert because you have an engineer and you know you have someone with an MBA uh, and executive experience. <laughs> I would say, you know, from my perspective, you don't come to get a master's of engineering management to leave engineering. You're coming in, I mean, the tagline is you're coming to lead it. Right. And so you you're tied to the technology, you're tied to the technical 
you know, fundamentals of the design or the technology, uh, the architecture of what's being invented while simultaneously transitioning that into the market context. And so the way that I view this is depending on the track and that they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. And we can talk about that. But, you know, the Masters of Engineering Management is putting somebody Potentially, you could think of them like that CTO track or somebody who's going to be entrepreneurial, but they're in on the design. They're not just marketing something that's technical that they're trusting somebody else. They can get into the details, you know, the technical specs, the the functionality, the the scoping. And I think that's a little bit different. Uh, I'll pass to Robert. It's always interesting here what your colleagues have to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I think that's that's spot on, Pat. And you know. One way I might phrase it is that the people who come for a master's in engineering management degree, they, they love what they do. They are technical experts in, in some engineering or computer science field, and they don't want to stop doing that. They just want to be much more skilled at leading that. It's a good distinction, both of you. Thank you. Let's, let's go into applying to and getting into the MEM, either the online or the on-campus one. What are the academic requirements to gain admission? So, I mean, I'll speak from director level. Our typical candidate is going to have an engineering degree or a quantitative STEM-driven, you know, physics, uh, computer science, you know, and sometimes that can be, you know, uh, mathematics uh, or applied physics or things like that. But it would be a rare exception that we wouldn't bring someone in that has STEM. And then even within those fields, a big part of our current program is we've made a significant move. And, you know, I think people can feel the pressures of how technology is changing on a day-by-day basis. And, you know, we want to set a foundation for our students. And so that means they need to understand probability statistics and the emerging underlying mathematics of analytics, you know, which is changing day-by-day. And so, you know, we put a big emphasis not just on the engineering or STEM degree, but also making sure that they have the, the underlying mathematical qualifications to be able to, to handle some of the analytics training that we'll have in the program. I'll pass to Robert in terms of if you want to add to any differences for our distance learning. No, I don't think I have anything to add to that. All right. What if somebody comes from a non- engineering background? Can they take the coursework? And would you consider that? And then if they showed aptitude in the coursework, or do you really want somebody with a STEM degree? Uh, I mean, what do I mean by STEM degree? And what is it I'm specifically, you know, the calc series. (laughs) So you're going to have to, you know, I'm looking in detail at whether or not somebody has gone all the way through, you know, multivariate calculus has some, you know, linear algebra in their background. You know, there's different levels of mechanics that, you know, we don't necessarily require that is in engineering degrees, but might be implied if they took, you know, electives in the College of Engineering. And then probability and statistics are something that we don't really compromise so much on, but that doesn't mean that we wouldn't allow somebody to take that in the background. So I think, you know, it's mathematics predominantly. It is nice to see some physics or if they're more on the software side, on the computer science side of interest, you know, that they have the underlying fundamentals there. 
in terms of, you know, software engineering, uh, some of the coding classes and some of the background and theoretical basis for software development. There are examples where we've had exceptional people that had unique backgrounds and stories uh, and they they did the the work. Right. So they they took they worked with us and asked what were the the, the background uh, in terms of the math and or physics or statistics that, you know, we thought would fill a gap for them. But, okay. you know, to be completely honest, that's relatively rare. All right. Thank you. Now, I would assume that it is rare because it's also very demanding. But I noticed in preparing for the call in terms of academic requirements that the GRE is optional for the online program and not even mentioned for the on-campus program. When is a solid GRE score a help to you? I do a lot of the initial screening of applications and then work with Robert and our whole program to really uh, vet our candidates. But to be honest, I don't use the GRE as a preliminary screening device, and I do not allow it to be uh, a negative. So okay. the way that I view it is it's supplemental information if somebody provides it. It provides me with a, maybe a little bit of extra information in terms of you know the quantitative or the verbal elements or some aspects. But I can say, you know, it, where they're spending their time, I'd spend a lot more time on the statement than I would on, you know, an optional GRE. Okay. Sounds good. That's great advice. Experientially, what do you like to see from candidates or in candidates' backgrounds? You know, aside from the, the two years minimum work experience, which is a requirement for all the online applicants, we really look for candidates who, who have a few things. One is ones who wanted to develop both their technical expertise, but also their human skills or their soft skills and their ability to be more effective leaders of engineering teams and engineering projects. We look for people who have a really clear understanding of why they want to come get the MEM degree and people who, who exhibit the, the potential to, to grow and to grow personally and that they're looking for you know, personal development over the course of this program, not just to simply uh, add a degree to their resume. Okay, great. Dr. Reed, do you want to add anything to that? I just, I really like that last point. I think this is a unique opportunity, right? You're coming to a program and whether it's distance, you're still in the Cornell family and resources and it's a unique time. And so I think it's really important to make it more than just, you know, resume decoration. This is an opportunity to really, you know, think about what you want to attain what your path is. And I think we can distinguish the types of candidates that want to just come because the name is Cornell versus those candidates that want to come because, you know, they're on a, a personal journey and in whatever their story is for their professional development or their aspirations. And yeah, we're really looking for the latter. Uh, I mean, that's part of our role is to help them fulfill that. So you're looking more for a purposeful approach to the application process. The purposeful, right? And that's why I emphasize this statement. People may be surprised, but, you know, I, I really do read every line of every one of these. And it's an amazing privilege, actually, to be able to meet digitally so many different people and have so many stories. But if you're the person writing it, you have to realize that you have somebody that's reading potentially hundreds of these. And so, you know, there are going to be things that are going to stand out, right? And it's going to be your personal narrative, your aspirations, the, the you know, why you're there. And it, it's more than just academics, too. 
it's not just that, oh, I got straight A's and therefore I qualify. You know, in many cases, if we have a compelling, you know, lived in experience that's narrated through a statement, you know, that will more than compensate for somebody not having, you know, a straight A GPA. All right, great. That's a wonderful answer. Thank you. Professor Newman, do you have anything to add? The only other thing that my I might look for in candidates, I mean, other than making sure they understand, like, what's the purpose for them coming and how's their world going to change as they get this degree, is make sure that they have a, a clear understanding uh, of the coursework and what they're walking into. Going from working full time to trying to get a degree online, you know, it's a lot of work and, and making sure they have a clear understanding and, and a way to budget their time so that when they sign up for, for a four credit hour course, they realize, okay, this is going to be 12 hours a week for the next 13 weeks. And that they have, have a realistic understanding of how that coursework is going to fit in their schedule, as well as how it's going to help develop and grow them professionally to reach their goals. Just to jump on that briefly, this is something I do want to maybe put a few underlines under is we're mandated by the state of New York to have a certain number of out of class hours spent per hour in class. And so obviously we take that seriously. And, you know, sometimes that can surprise some applicants, both on campus and in particular those that are, you know, in a working environment and for the distance. So I would say, you know, when applicants come from the first conversations, it's good to clarify with us, um, you know, where you're at and what the actual expectations are. It's not something we arbitrarily choose. You know, this is something that's mandated and then we carefully track. Yeah, I think uh, for most part-time programs, that's, you know, something that they really have to understand and also have to support. Then they need their employer support if they're working full time. They might need their family support if they have families. So that is that is critical. Now we've touched on the statement of purpose, and can you describe the application process for each of the programs? I noticed there's a statement of uh, purpose requirement and a technical writing sample requirement for both programs, which is a little bit unusual. And last question was, can you go into a, the distinction between the statement of purpose and the technical writing sample? So there's a lot in that that one question. I probably should have broken it up. Yeah, no, I, I'll, I'll take. So the statement of purpose is landing us into your narrative, right? Who are you? What is the journey that you've been on? You know, what are the aspirations and experiences that have shaped where you're at? And then how do you connect to our program? And we're looking for a degree of maturity there right? That's somebody that's taking ownership in this experience. It's not, oh, I'm going to go to Cornell and they're going to get me a job. No, you're going to get you a job through completing your narrative and your path professionally. Now, when we move to the example of professional writing, that's a different voice and it's a very different skill. And, it, you know, it, it's telling, right? In terms of, you know, the professional voice and the, the narrative of presenting technical information. So I find that also quite helpful to, to distinguish candidates where you can see, you know, in context, uh, whether that's on campus or distance, how they're communicating and conveying information, which is obviously it's not about necessarily them. That's about the clarity of their communication and in many ways, uh, the ability of our program to, to augment that ability to communicate. And Robert, do you want to add it all to that? Uh, he covered it really well. I think so. I think so. Yeah, great. 
Now, on the site, you encourage applicants to be creative. And the site actually says, quote, we want to learn more about you in a fun, engaging way, close quote. Now, I have read thousands of statements of purpose in the last 20 plus years. So I can understand why you'd rather read fun, engaging statements of purpose. But when does fun and creative demonstrate poor judgment or become weird, forced, or just inauthentic? Not not helpful. I mean, in the modern age of AI-supported writing, <laughs> if we start to see similar patterns in your prose, <laughs> that it may in fact be augmented uh, and not telling your story. Uh, I'd say, you know, that's a new issue um, yeah. that's, you know, coming in. I think in terms of that boundary, first of all, it's fine to not overshare. And if you do want to share, that's fine. But, you know, sometimes you read an essay and you come out of the other end of it and you're not sure how it's related to grad school. Okay. And so, you know, might have been fun, might have been creative, but it's not topically relevant to <laughs> okay. the, the task at hand. And I would say, having just read several hundred of these, those are the cases that stand out is not connecting to what we're doing, right? This is a collaborative communication. We're exchanging information. And if I don't leave from that exchange with any, you know, more in-depth knowledge of you and how you connect to my program, you know, I might remember your essay, but I'm probably <laughs> not going to, you know, positively respond. Right. You may not re remember it in a positive way either. <laughs> <laughs> There's... Always, you know, interesting examples here or there. Right, right. Um, okay, great. That was a wonderful answer. Thank you very much. Um, Robert, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I I, I, I do. I mean, realistically, I, I want to know something about the applicant that would be different than every other applicant can tell me, right? So I want them to bring enough creativity to their application or to their interview where I have something unique about them that I might remember and something that kind of sets them apart. Because realistically, you know, we have hundreds and hundreds of applicants and most of them have very similar backgrounds, right? So bringing something fun, something different, something unique about yourself helps to make it personalized as long as you don't take it too far. And as long as you still put it in the context of why you're applying for this program and why this program is a good fit for you. Right. There is one thing I do want to tie to the degree though. And it's something that I think we we cover in a lot of our classes is that creativity is the defining trait that separates a lot of folks in success. The ability to do the quantitative work is, you know, not necessarily unique, but it's what you do with that quantitative work that's going to be, you know, the distinguishing factor. And so beginning with that creativity and how one presents oneself you know, you start to get an indication because the reality is we are, you know, we have an incredibly talented pool and that pool is only beginning more competitive and larger. So to be honest, most people have, you know, pretty incredible quantitative skill sets. What distinguishes people is what they're going to do with it. Right. I'm not an engineer. I've never studied engineering, but I know my, my husband is an actuary. And he is very creative with numbers. It seems to me like the top engineers have to be on one hand analytical, but it's 
It's the creativity that they bring to that analysis and that numerical and quantitative ability that distinguishes the great engineers from the the average engineers. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things is doing what's already been done well is not trivial. Recognizing what needs to be done and hasn't been done and how one would approach it, right, is that's where you start to get into, you know, new spaces, new impacts, translating your ideas into new markets. That, And so, you know, that's where we're sort of operating is we want those individuals that, you know, aren't following through with, you know, tried and true methods. We want the folks that are creating what is going to be needed and that vision and that creativity, both on the quantitative side and we shouldn't just overemphasize, you know, the bias in engineering is, you know, doing quantitative work and thinking that that's thinking, um, right? You know, the organizational behavioral elements, you know, relating the managerial elements, uh, you can have a great idea, but, you know, if you don't team build and bring that out in terms of the actual context that, you know, is going to take it to market, then no, idea might as well not exist. Thank you. Thank you for the, the answer. Is an interview required of all admitted applicants? And if not, who is invited to interview? That's a great question. Basically, we like to interview as many applicants as feasible. And the structure and system is a little different for online students than it is for on-campus students. With the on-campus students, we get flooded with applications of students that we've never talked to. And so in that case, we're going to interview almost all of those. Um, there may be a few very, very top candidates or a few candidates who have a, a Cornell engineering undergraduate degree who we may admit without an interview. But for the most part, the on-campus student applicants are gonna get an interview if they're in contention uh, for a position. With the online program, it's a little different in that without any exceptions that I know of, by the time somebody applies to the online program, they've already spoken to faculty, they've already spoken to staff, and we already have some of a relationship and an understanding of who they are and why they're coming here. So there's no re usually a reason to schedule a separate interview after the fact because we've already gotten to know them a little bit through information sessions and then one-on-one -on -one questions and answers that uh, just don't happen with the on-campus cohort, but they do happen ahead of time with the online students. Okay, great, thank you. The two questions that have occurred to me as, as you have been speaking, you, you said how many people are in the program, but how many applications do you receive in an academic cycle? That's been growing, you know, which is, you know, nothing I'm necessarily complaining about at all. So this year we have for on-campus and I think distance learning combined, approaching about 600. Last year, we were over 700. Wow. When I started my position as director in 2015, we were, you know, more in the 180 applications. And so as our program has evolved, our curriculum has evolved. And I think the awareness of technology and management meets engineering has evolved. There's been a bit of an explosion. And so, I mean, to give you some, you know, direct, transparent numbers, we're looking at a applications, particularly we'll take the on-campus as the example. There's more than 500 of those 
we are looking at probably interviewing no more than 140 individuals. And the interview doesn't mean that we're at the final decision. That's, you know, the last part of the evaluation. All right, great, thank you. And especially for the online program, but for both of them, is there an international component to the student body? Yeah, so so there, there definitely is. Um, with the online program, we're really focused at this point, we're still kind of focused on North America, just for the convenience of time zone, sure. although we may expand that in the future. With the on-campus cohort, we have probably about 70% of our students come from countries outside of the United States. Wow, that's a lot. That's enormous. Okay, great. Now, moving kind of forward in, the, in this journey, what are typical positions that grads of the MEM programs go into? Sure. Um, it would almost be easier to tell you what positions they don't go into, but okay. I, can, I can take a stab at this because you have to understand that the, the students coming in, first of all, have a broad range of experience and, and industries and undergraduate work. So we everything from computer science to biomedical engineering to aerospace engineering to civil engineering to, to mechanical engineering and electrical engineering. So that there's a wide range of skill sets coming in. And there's a wide range of interests, not only in different industries, but also different job types. So, so many will go into engineering roles, others will go into data analytics, some will go into consulting, both product management and project management is extremely popular with our graduates. Hmm. And some come because they have kind of an entrepreneurial mindset and, and they're looking to either start businesses or grow businesses. All right, thank you. Now, I noticed online that at Cornell and certainly at other universities, there's an option for an MS MBA. That's obviously diff different from the MEM, and it probably takes about three years to complete. But for whom is that option better for? So I think that's really good option for top students. And I mean, absolute top students is extremely competitive program to get into. But people who are looking uh, to be entrepreneurs or looking to actually run businesses, so, so engineers, and technical people who have a mindset that they want to be moving up to the C-suite at some point while staying in very tech products or tech services and engineering related fields. The program is sequential, so it's not in parallel. You'd still come and get your MEM degree first. And then in your last semester of the MEM degree, you would apply to the Johnson School for the MBA portion of the combined program. Okay, wonderful. Now, what is a common mistake that you see applicants make in their application? We've discussed a, a couple of them. I don't know if this is going to be repetitive, actually. But just, uh, again, this is something I like to ask because it's, I think, as instructive sometimes to know what people shouldn't do is what they should do. So what would you say is a yeah. common mistake that you see? I mean, one is, you know, complete the application as requested. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's a basic, but, you know, surprisingly common issue. And, you know, I think one of the things that people may, they may see it as a, a task and not a story. It makes sense for it to be an integrated story that includes your transcript, right? Because you're taking classes on a degree and you had aspirations. So I assume you would invest in that. You know, your professional, there's it makes no sense. You know, every so often you'll see folks will have not gone to as much depth on the professional experience they actually have. And so, you know, uh, I would limit your opportunity costs. So if you, you have a unique experience, I, I would share that. 
And then I think, you know, too few students necessarily realize that, you know, we do value things that go beyond just academics. So, and the example is, you know, if you have a unique skill set, like you're a concert pianist, but that's not related to your engineering management, you know, it is related actually. So like, we should know about that because right? it speaks volumes about your dedication, right? And you know, you, your breadth. And so, yeah, I, I would say don't sell yourself short and yeah, make sure that the story is broad in all of the features that you, you need us to know about. Okay, great, thank you. Professor Newman, do you yeah, want to and, and I would add to that, when it gets to the level of an interview, there's really two repeated common mistakes that I see. And that is applicants either when they're asked a question, quickly diverting to telling me what they want me to hear about them. Like the, uh, they have a pre, conceived storyline they want to make sure they get across during their interview instead of answering the question that was asked and the other similar mistake they may make is some applicants will provide an answer that they believe the interviewer wants to hear instead of just answering the question as asked and so one of the things we look for can, can you actually listen to my question and answer the question as opposed to telling me some things that you think are really important for me to hear about your background. Okay, that's great. I'll just add one thing sure, to that. Sure, go ahead. Be exceptional, but don't tell us that you are exceptional. That's a great one. That's a great one. <laughs> that is a great one. I like that, Pat. Very succinct, short, sweet, and to the point. It's a great one. Okay. I'm great. Really, I am. Um, what question would you have liked me to ask that I haven't asked? Or what question uh, would you like to answer that I didn't ask? You know, for me, I think one of the things is where do we see things evolving, especially at the interface of engineering, tech, and business over, you know, even the next five years? Great. Um, you know, and I think, you know, we're in a stage now where if somebody, you know, went back to 2019 and then tried to predict 2020 through 2023, they'd probably do a pretty poor job. Yeah. And that's not all, you know, we can fixate on the, the negative sides of that. But there's also the positive sides of that in terms of the explosive growth. Uh, you know, AI has largely gone common and viral, right? Uh, people are playing with it, you know, in their everyday and in their networks. And that's not slowing down. We're at the beginning phases of this. And there's levels of communication, you know, at the humanity scale that, you know, hasn't existed before. And, it, you know, are accelerating and the, you know, breakthroughs in technology. So to get to the point here is that I think, you know, training for a future where creativity a willingness to embrace the fact that, you know, the future is going to have some ambiguities and some significant uncertainties to stop pretending like we're going to respond to what will be and, you know, be a little more uh, careful with being ready just in case. And, you know, the way that we're handling our technologies, the way we're handling our supply chains, the way that we're having an impact. At the end of the day, you know, if we're really thinking about, you know, the impact of technology, the impact of decisions, the impact of engineering on society, there are a lot of issues to consider there. 
I think we need to make sure that as we're moving forward, that we can distinguish actual action that is making the world a better place from the appearance of action. And I think, you know, part of that is the breadth of training and the depth of training. And, you know, I think that's something that we discuss a lot in our program is bringing people to the stage where, you know, it's not the appearance of action, you're actually making a translatable impact. It sounds to me like that's your niche. We hope so. Right. Professor Newman, did you have a question that you'd like to, to respond to that I didn't ask? Sure, absolutely. Absolutely. I guess a question that I, I would like you to ask that you may not have is, is, is what do our students and what do our graduates say as to why they chose Cornell as a as an MEM program from Cornell. And and what we see is they, they give three or four reasons over and over again. One is is the, the the strong mix of extremely technically rigorous skill development alongside with human soft skill development needed for leadership. Another one is the level of personal support from faculty to students uh, is really appreciated by our alumni and our students. And, and probably the third one. Right, we might have to wait a minute to hear what the third one is, because apparently the storm is raging. I don't know. The uh, storm is raging. The and storm it's is raging. I want to hear yeah. the third one myself. All right. Well, we'll hang on again. <laughs> we've, we've gotten almost through the podcast without losing uh, Professor Newman, and we knew it was a possibility. And hopefully he'll be on in a minute and we can and we can hear the third one. I don't know. Do you have to know what he was going to say? Wait. I hypothesize that flexibility might come up. Okay, here he is. All right. So what's the yes, third one? Yes, good <laughs> hypothesis. Okay, we have a snowstorm going on uh, and it's affecting the internet here. But the, the third reason is absolutely the flexibility of the program and the ability to pick uh, nine credits of electives as well as one of your uh, organizational behavior electives is really appreciated. And then the fourth one would be is the strength and support that they get from the alumni network. So we have the Cornell alumni network is huge. And even with the MEM program itself, it's been going on for well over 30 years on campus. Uh, Cornell alumni like to help Cornell students and, and future alumni. So those are the four reasons why people tell me over and over that they came to Cornell for a master's in engineering management. Great. That's a wonderful way to end. I'm glad I'm glad you got that in so we didn't have to end it on a cliffhanger with no resolution. That would not have been a very pretty picture. But um, anyways, Dr. Reed and Professor Newman, thank you so much for joining me today. I've enjoyed learning more about Cornell's Master's in Engineering Management and its evolution since the last time we spoke. Dr. Reed, where can listeners and interested applicants learn more about it? So you can go to our website, www e-n-g-m-a-n-a-g-e-m-e-n-t management so that's engmanagement.cornell.edu or if you just want to do google cornell engineering management you're going to find us i'm sure that'll work too and i have another way you can you can learn about it listener um you'll find links in the show notes at exhibit.com slash 516 to the Masters in Engineering Management site, as well as to related podcasts and resources. And don't forget to download your free copy of Applying to Graduate Engineering Programs, What You Need to Know at exhibit.com slash 516 download.
Listener, thank you too for tuning in to this, our 516th episode. Don't miss any future shows or valuable information. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcatcher you prefer. You can find subscribe links at accepted.com slash 516. This is Admission Straight Talk produced by Accepted, and I am your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you again next week. 